Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Fistova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Katie Donovan. Katie is one of the leading pay equity experts and advocates in the US. She innovated and authored the widely praised and quickly adopted restrictions on the common question of salary history in hiring and compensation decisions. In doing so, she proved the processes are indeed biased. Katie's innovation has led to 34 laws and executive orders within four years to be passed on the state and local levels. And more importantly for women, to earn starting salaries that are 8% higher and black job changes to earn starting salaries that are 13% higher. Since 2011, Katie has been consulting with individuals on negotiating their pay and on changing the processes within their organizations through her firm, Equal Pay Negotiations. Katie's roles in the fight for pay equity have included founding member of the Massachusetts Equal Pay Coalition, and she's advising pay equity advocates on strategy, tactics, and testimony throughout the country. Katie has spoken and conducted workshops on equal pay, salary negotiations, and unintended biases in hiring at hundreds of venues, including Harvard Business School, MIT, and NASDAQ. She is a sought-after commentator on pay equity and women in business, including the BBC and CNN. Now, we talk about how to close the pay gap for women and minorities, And I asked Katie to explain what is systemic pay bias and the impact this specifically has on women and their net worth over time. Katie talks to us about how to prepare for a salary negotiation and how to deal with pushback when we get it. And why is it that companies need to balance pay every single year? This was such a fascinating conversation with Katie. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Katie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. This is really a pleasure. We were saying just a a bit earlier that we first connected back in 2012. And so it's a real pleasure to be speaking again. You're an advocate for change and specifically for closing the gender pay gap for women and minorities. And I'm really curious to know, why are you so passionate about this topic? It really comes down to my nieces. I have four of them. When I got started in this in 2011, they were ranging from elementary school children to just about to graduate college. And I didn't want them to have the exact same conversations myself and my middle-aged friends were having in 20 years from now. Yeah, it just seemed insane to me. I had a history of working in staffing and for an applicant tracking company and a trade association that I knew what the issues were. And there was just a crystallized moment where I said, "Mm, this can't continue. So I got passionate about it. Which is a brilliant way to be. Can you share with us an experience that you've had, which really highlighted some of the challenges or the difficulties that women 
and minorities face when it comes to negotiating a fair salary or a fair package? There's interesting research or depressing research, depending on your perspective, that women negotiate just as much as men, but they don't get the raises just as much as men. So it's not that women or people of color or any group is doing something wrong and not advocating for themselves, as we hear often. It's that the receiver of the information isn't treating it the same way as when it's given from, I always refer to them as like the six foot tall white guy. The white gentleman is the unbiased standard. We're all trying to get every group or demographic to earn the same as that when they're doing similar work. And for some reasons, there are additional hurdles put in front of other groups of people. It makes sense on a business perspective that that happens. When you look at businesses, they are trying to minimize their costs, maximize their profits. That's all fine and dandy. I'm not trying to prevent that. And you see that every year, if you follow HR news, there is around 3% payroll increase allowed from one year to another. That's what they're stuck dealing with. Well, that 3% is never going to allow a 20%, 30%, 50% gap to be closed from any individual. So if I'm being asked for a raise by a, a guy who's already making about 100% of what you can make for the job, I can give him a 5% raise and it's not going to really impact my overall payroll. But when the people who are making 20%, 30% less come and look to try to get equal, I can't give them that 20%, that 30% and get it to the same point. It's just not possible. And that's the problem that's being felt. We have dueling competitions of we want to make everyone equal, which is great programs on you know child care and family leave and different things. But then when it comes to the actual dollars, it's like, oh, no, we got to manage our payroll, which is our biggest expense, and we're going to keep it at a 3% growth. They don't work together. I understand the point. I mean, businesses are always trying to minimize costs. So why would they suddenly say yes to a 10, 15, 20% pay rise? Absolutely. You know, they're looking for when they hire someone new, what is the least amount of money I need to offer that person for them to accept the job? That's really the starting point of how they think about it as an employer. It's not what does this job pay? And as an advocate or change agent, we're not going to have equality in pay until we have the conversation, not about the individual or the individual group, but about what is the job's value, not know your own worth, know the job's worth. And the employer's got to start thinking that way as well. Can you talk to us about systemic pay bias. What is it? And how is this holding women back? Well, I look at systemic pay bias as the processes themselves. It's the really boring, unsexy stuff that's amazingly effective. So when I first got involved in equal pay efforts, 
back in October of 2011. So I was only in it for a few months at that point. I was asked for a documentary that never got released, but it set me on a path of if I could write laws, what would I have as a law to impact the gender pay gap? And to me, the answer was twofold. I would ban questions about your previous salary, and I would require that any job advertisement actually included what a job paid. Because at the time, only about 10% of jobs actually included, job advertisements actually included anything about what it paid, which is just bizarre. We have so many laws in so many countries about financial disclosure. You can't buy a loaf of bread without knowing how much you're going to have to pay for it. It has to be marked publicly. But we're hiding the most important financial decision anyone makes except for the top one percenters, which is a job, which is how they make their money. So the salary history part of it, it really is about figuring out what's that one penny spot where I can get someone to say yes and accept the job without me paying more money than I need to, because they basically just add 10% to what you used to make. And if you're earning 20%, 30%, 50% less than what a white gentleman is earning, and you're trying to get on par with the standard, you absolutely positively never can, because the math includes your underpayment. And so that is a systemic bias. And I'm happy to report that here in the States, I drafted the first law that had a ban. It ended up being a restriction on when that question can be asked. And it really took off here in the States where we have now 27 states with different either laws or what we call executive orders for either local jurisdictions or the entire state. So it's really preventing it being used. It took off in four years that we got that big groundswell. And research just came out in June. Because of those restrictions, any woman who's changing a job is earning 8% more than if she was asked that question. And any specifically Black people, as they're changing jobs, they earn 13% more. So just taking that question off of the application has made a huge impact already. And there's a bunch of other steps like that in hiring, promotion, and compensation decisions that have similar impact. Yeah, that's so powerful, Katie. Really, really important work. And I mean, asking the obvious question, what what are the implications for women and their net worth? I mean, the answer is pretty obvious, but there are some pretty profound implications, aren't there? Obvious to some and not to others, because you forget, if you're not working in this world and you're focused on what your actual vocation is and not thinking about the work aspect of it, you, you kind of lose sight of it. So it's understandable, even though sometimes it's frustrating. Most end of year bonuses or other bonuses are based on your base salary. So an increase of 20% or 8% or 13% of your base salary is not only increasing your base salary, it's probably increasing your overall compensation for the year. It's also increasing 
your retirement money, the restrictions of what you can and cannot put into retirement. I mean, each country has their own rules of financial stuff. So it's depending on where you live, it can have varied impact there. It has impact on your benefits at your job. Most benefits also are based on your level of compensation. You may have life insurance and that will be a multiplier of what you earn. So should you pass away, which no one wants you to do, your family will actually get better benefits than had you not gotten higher pay. Your short-term disability, long-term disabilities, your ability to get promoted. And I say this, even though we're making great progress in the States on salary history questions, it's not universal in the U.S. and it's definitely not most countries. I mean, most countries haven't even been aware of this yet. Mm. But what happens if I go as a new manager for a department at an employer, and I want to meet with the 10 people who are now reporting to me, I'll probably have one-on-ones with them within the first couple of weeks to get a feel for who is reporting to me. I'll probably pull out some version of their employee folder to see are they good, bad, or indifferent. And depending on where you are, you may or may not see their actual income. Well, if I see someone standing out making 15, 20% more than the rest of the gang, to me, that's probably, oh, he's the high-flying, amazing person. And I already made a connotation with no basis other than seeing that number. That's really interesting. And that's a huge problem in promotions. Yeah. Which leads us nicely into talking about the compound effect and why it's important to really understand in this context. Yeah, the compound, it's not just where you are today. It can be over the course of your career, which can be 10, 14 jobs. You know, that's that's about the range right now. Your average job is about four years long. And that doesn't mean you're changing employers, you could be promoting within your own employer, or you could be changing employers and industries. But all of those added up, it can easily be half a million dollars. It could be a million dollars, depending on the industry you're in. The higher paid an industry you're in, the bigger the impact to the course of your life. I I remember reading this research myself, where I think they estimate on average women will lose out between a quarter of a million to a million plus pounds in the UK over the course of their life. As you say, it can be so much more depending on the industry, depending on how senior you are in your job. So, I mean, the the effect is humongous. (laughs) It's quite shocking, really, when you stop to think about it. It's a retirement. It's having another child and not thinking about the costs of it. It's, It's so many different things. That's right. So I'd love to talk about negotiation for a bit. It's something that we have to do every day. We do do. But when you bring it up as a topic, uh, people, and especially women, shy away from it. And I should say one of the reasons that's the case is that, as you rightly said, Katie, there is pushback on women when they do negotiate, especially in the workplace. But can we talk about negotiation and, and why it's important? Well, if you do not negotiate, you do not have a chance of earning additional money. 
it's actually part of the hiring process. It's similar to you would not go to an interview without a CV. You should never, ever, ever accept a job without negotiating. Now, that does not mean you will always be successful. And we will talk about the definition of successful because most people think about, oh, I'm terrible at negotiation. I never get what I ask for. To me, that is a success statement. If you get everything you ask for, you did not ask for enough. <laughs> really, you have to go into negotiation knowing that you are going to fail because that's how it's designed. Both parties have to come out thinking they got a little something. If you get everything, something is totally wrong. So first, change your perspective about what negotiation is. That's part of it. Know that your employer expects it, especially as you're moving into management positions. You are expected to negotiate as part of your job. They will want to see that you can. So you negotiating is just proving that you're good at your job. They have much more information than you do. They see every piece of the puzzle. You see only like a third of the pieces of the puzzle. So there's always a mismatch of power in this negotiation. That doesn't mean you can't be amazingly good at it. And the number one piece of advice I can give to you on that is to start looking for your next step in your career long before you're ready for it. Don't wait till you're bored out of your mind or you hate your current job, which is when most of us do. That's human nature. And so therefore, we then think we have to say yes to the very first job that comes our way because we can't stand the thought of walking into work the next day. I hate the people I'm with. I'm bored out of my mind, blah, blah, blah. You have zero power if you let yourself get there because you're just going to say yes. Mm. The power in negotiation is saying no. I can teach you a million tricks, but if you're unwilling to say no, you're never going to get the progress you need really really powerful so how do we reframe it so it's something that we're not afraid to do and and something that we spend more time thinking about or maybe even improving our skills around so that when it's time to negotiate we do it well think about every time you've negotiated for other things not for yourself yeah whether it's for your child to get a better teacher in school, you know, I want him in this section instead of that section, whether it's to get a better table at a restaurant or a better hotel room. If you're not doing those types of negotiations, start doing them. So you're just flexing your muscle because it's like going for a five mile or a 5k run. If you only do it once a year, you're going to be amazingly bad at it and probably feel like you're about to have a heart attack. <laughs> If you start with a 1K and then move up, you know, like you'll get there, but you have to stretch your muscles and exercise. And that's what negotiation is as well. It's a skill set that you have to exercise. So don't only do it once every three years when you're like, I hate how much I'm making. I'm going to go start a fight. Just do it on little things. Negotiate when your vacation is. Try to get the day that everyone else is fighting for and you figure out a way to get it. Make those small wins. The other thing about negotiation is most of it is one on preparation. It's not the actual conversation. 
you have to understand that not one thing coming out of the mouth of the other person in the room should be believed. Because it's like, a, I don't care what country, I don't care what kind of organization. It's like a playbook that all managers eventually learn or instinctively learn. I'm not sure which, but it's amazing how quickly the most financially sound company will say they can't afford to give you 2,000 extra pounds a year. And your response back should be, oh my gosh, should I look for another job? Because if you really cannot afford to pay me 2,000 extra pounds, something is amazingly wrong here. Are we going under? (laughs) (laughs) You need to have and go like, well, that's really weird because I know we just had profits of 8% last year and we've had it at 8 and 10% for the past whatever years. We're growing. This is crazy. So you need to have that kind of information at your fingers to be able to just counter every lie they tell you because you will be lied to. And it doesn't change that they're an amazing manager and they love you and they're going to make you successful in every other moment in your career there. But during the negotiation, nothing is real. And I think what you're referring to there as well is leverage. Leverage is essentially what allows us to kind of move the negotiation forward. And the more you can establish what your leverage is, and nine times out of 10, if you are bringing in revenue to the business, if you are responsible for key clients, key accounts, if you are, you know, on a project that has saved the business, say 20%, you have leverage, you have incredible power in that negotiation. Leverage is important and leverage, every employee has it. They just don't think about it. And how you discussed it is very accurate. It's not about what you do. It's the impact of what you did. You were talking about, I brought in key clients. Well, a lot of people talk about what they do based on how they live it. So they'll talk about, well, I made 15 cold calls and got three appointments and You know, they're not thinking that they may have done a lot less work than someone who is busting their tail and really bad at sales and not getting any clients, but they're really good at it. And they can come in, spend two hours and close the biggest deal in the world. That's leverage, but that person may think they're not as valuable because they're not putting in as many hours. So it's not tasks. It's really impact. How are you impacting the bottom line? The other question that popped into my mind there was, I was talking to someone a couple of weeks ago and she had just started a new job, obviously during the pandemic. And this friend of mine said that she didn't negotiate. She didn't even think to negotiate given the difficult business and economic environment that we're in right now. What would you say to that? I know people getting increases from the original offer right now. They have been for the past February, March timeframe since then. The thing about negotiation is, as I said, employers expect it. Good times, bad times, whatever. And the term first offer exists for a reason. It really is the first offer. So. 
what you want to do for that is remember if employers are expecting negotiation or expect this to be the first offer, they have at least two pounds to work with. They have something to the side that has already been approved. They have not given you an offer with the most that's possible. So even in a bad time, it's about understanding. And here's an amazing systemic bias in hiring. You want to do your research on what is the market paying for the job. So in a recession, the market is paying differently than when it's a full employment economy. Absolutely, you're not going to get what you could have gotten a year ago. But when you do the research, you're going to get numbers that are the median pay of everyone who's working. And that is an absolutely meaningless number. And yet it is the golden standard. 85% of employers use it as their target number when trying to bring someone on board. Here's the problem with it. If the unbiased standard is the white man on what they're earning, why don't we have what the white man is earning in any given job at any given time? Why are we throwing in all the people who are underpaid in that data? It would be similar to a doctor telling you when you have a temperature of 37.7 Celsius that you're healthy because that's the average of everyone who took their temperature this year. And it's obviously a bad temperature to have. You have a fever. They only look at the healthy number when they're taking your temperature. Why in our pay are they not just focusing on the healthy number? So when you do your research, you have to adjust it and aim even higher and aim for something like the 75 or 90 percentile because that's about what the median of men are making right now. So do you believe that employers should be transparent with pay? Absolutely. But what's your definition of transparency? It differs. Everyone has a different definition. My definition is first, start using, and they may already do it in the UK, so I apologize if I'm forgetting and I think you're better at this, of start posting what the job pays in your advertisements. That's the first level of transparency. I don't need to know if Bob earns something or Betty earns something, because I also could be working for the amazingly cheap company. I could care less if I'm earning equally at the cheap company when I could go two blocks down the street and earn much more at a competitor that's actually paying the going rate for the job. I actually believe that we should have transparency of pay within companies so people know what they're paid. And I think transparency drives entirely different behavior. And I think, as you say, Katie, if there is transparency, we know what the average white male is earning her role, then I think there's just going to be more focus, more effort to make sure that we get rid of the archaic remuneration practices, hiring negotiation practices that seem to apply to women and minorities still. Yeah, it would be nice to get there, but there's definitely a pushback from a mm. lot of places. Also, I see in the UK, one of the things that here in Massachusetts in the states where I live is illegal. When they find pay gaps, they're actually decreasing the pay of men to make it equal 
that's not the purpose of it. You know, that doesn't really create any equality at all. If you find inequality, you can't decrease someone else's pay. You have to up the person's pay who's underpaid. So it's things like that, which is why there's so much pushback. But it definitely needs to get there. And it can look and feel a million different ways. It is a very complex issue, isn't it? And the sense I get is it's not going to change overnight, but we are taking little steps. And obviously with the work that you're doing, Katie, there's one step at a time. But yeah, we just have to keep going. So I'm going to change gears a little bit. Knowing what we know, how can women prepare for a salary or salary package negotiation? What are some of the key steps that they need to take to be ready? First is research. And by that, I mean not asking your friends what they earn and not asking your colleagues because you don't know if you're asking the right people. There's a lot of free research out there that actually employers are tending to use the paid version of the same data. So, you know, whether it's like a salary.com, which I know is in tons of countries throughout the world, look up what that job pays in your region in your industry. Make it a broader thing than just your specific employer, because that is not a big enough pool to have a good picture. As I said, you could be looking at the cheap people. No one wants to be the doctor making the least amount of money, (laughs) you know, whatever it might be. You know, you need to see the bigger picture. Then you need to adjust it and aim high because the median pay for any job is less than what men are making. Then you also have to do the research on the actual employer, understand their financials. I'm not saying that you need to all of a sudden become a financial analyst, but look at a trend. Are they on the past three years increasing their income and their profits or are they on a downslide? So when they do tell you how they can't afford things, you have some responses. Practice your opening line. There's a lot of talking to yourself before you do this. Because it's not so much what you say as in the specific words, but it's more that you really have a a relaxed confidence about, hey, I know I'm not getting paid appropriately. Don't you try to lie to me. If you go in with that kind of shake or catch in your throat, they know they can walk all over you. So practice it. And don't ask permission to negotiate. That would be my number two advice. Just start negotiating, going, well, that's lower than I expected it to be. But even before you get to that sentence of that's lower than I expected it to be, give yourself time to actually review the entire package. If you get offered a new job, thank them profusely, tell them you're just thrilled to have the opportunity And then that you'll take a few days to review the offer and get back to them with an informed response. The key there is informed. You know nothing. Depending on what's in the package beyond your salary, what seems like a 10,000 pound increase could actually be a 5,000 pound loss in your overall lifestyle. So you need to step away and do some math and figure it out. And if you experience unconscious bias or pushback when you're negotiating, 
whether it's your salary or, or package, what can you do? What are some of the specific things you can do? Well, I have kind of a catch-all answer for anything that is what I consider red herring. There's going to be a bunch of stuff brought up that has no meaning to you making what you should be making. When you hear that, just say, well, thank you so much for sharing that. That's very interesting. And then take it back to the amazingly objective item of the market rate of the job. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing. But my problem is this isn't an offer that is online with what the market is paying for the job right now. Just keep being a broken record. Bring it back there. Never, ever, ever say that's a discrimination mm. <laughs> until after you have gotten a lawyer and you are down a whole different road. Because the second you say anything of like, wow, that seems sexist, that seems discriminatory. I'm not sure if that's allowed by law. You have just put the employer in the defense mode and they will shut down in an instant and their lawyers come and you get nowhere. You think it's going to help you go like, oh, they don't want to be sexist. They want to embrace me. They love me. No, the second you accuse them of a crime, they're going to act like that. Really good advice. Now, Katie, we, we talk about the gender pay gap, but the gender equity gap for female founders is actually more pronounced. <laughs> and I remember when I first read about this, I was quite shocked because I think it's something like 48%. So women often have far less equity than their male peers, and they have less employee stock options if they work in a startup. What should women do to make sure they hang on to their equity and that they negotiate more of these employee stock options? Well, the thing is, it goes back to the research aspect. It's not just salary that you're researching. It's the overall package. You have to look at the whole thing. And once again, I'm going to just use salary.com because I know they're worldwide and their information is based on the employer reporting it. So it's a fairly good starting point, but there's a million different things in there. I'm not blaming salary.com and I'm not endorsing them. I'm just using them because they're pretty international. But with that, like they have in there equity information. They have all that info. Oh, wow. So you can just click the benefits package and see, should I be getting stock options? Should I be getting this? Should I be getting that based on where you are in the job and the industry and everything else? It's amazing. Our friends Google, you know, once again, I'm using the big, the big name in the industry, but any search engine, if you just start typing in the words, what kind of equity should an accountant get in a whatever company, it will give you tons of different resources with varying levels of correct and incorrect, but it will give you, you know, find three out of five saying the same thing and you have a pretty good answer there. So do that research, but also know, regardless, whatever they ask you, ask for more, focus on percentage, not on numbers when it comes to equity. I can tell you I'm going to give you a trillion pieces of stock, but if they're giving out quadrillions, that's meaningless, you know? Like So yes. the number is a relative number. You need to see, well, out of all the stock given to employees, what percentage is that type of thing or what's available, what's the rate of it? And when does it come to you? Like how long do you have to keep it before you can touch it? 
men definitely have stock options that have no kind of delay, where women in a much bigger percentage have a much longer period for them to be actually able to get to them. So I would say go for the sky. I want the stock option to have no kind of qualifying time. I want it to be at 2%, 3%, 5%. Talk percentage. Don't talk numbers. Yeah. Aim big and let them come with something else. Yeah, really, really powerful. And it's so important to be aware of all of this, right? Ahead of the negotiations so you're ready. You know what to watch out for. You know what to ask for. Yeah, research. It's key. And I think role play is also quite powerful because I think the more you you practice, you can practice with a friend or your partner or whoever, you want to feel really comfortable communicating, you know, getting your point across. And when you potentially get pushed back, you want to feel that's okay, I'm ready for it. And I've practiced how I'm going to respond to this. And make sure your roommate, friend, spouse, whomever, is mean. They have to. It's no good. It's no good to role play if all they say is like, wow, you got it. No, you need someone to just be a jerk to you for a half hour and get it out (laughs) of your system. Absolutely. Then you're ready. Then you're ready. Right. I'm curious, what are some of the companies out there that are doing really well in this space where they've focused on gender equal pay, gender parity. What are some of the companies that are kind of really focusing on this? Well, I'm going to use Salesforce. They've been a long time, kind of golden child on the pay equity issue. But they also just this week, I think it was just yesterday, announced that they're extending their work from home through, and this might depress you all because I know I felt like I got kicked in the gut through August of 2021. So let's all plan for very long times that we're working from home. But they also increased paid time off for parents by another six weeks because they're acknowledging none of us know where our children are going to be. Are they going to be at school? Are they going to be working from home? Is it going to be a hybrid? Are you going to be doing things that take you away from work? Yes. The answer is absolutely yes. We just don't know what it looks and feels like. And they're making adjustments to help with that caregiving part that impacts women at a much higher rate than it impacts men. But it is a parent thing. Now, the other side for women who are caregivers of adult parents, you know, elder parents, They might be like, what about us? Well, it's a huge step in the right direction. There may be at a future time, if you're listening, Salesforce, think about the adults, caregivers taking care of elder parents, because they have issues too that the pandemic has brought up. But here's the thing with Salesforce. So they're doing all this stuff to help with equity. And they have been for about four years. They put a line in the sand saying, we are going to pay equally. And every year they do an audit. And here's the nice thing. Every year they adjust pay. Here's the not so nice thing. Every year they have to adjust pay. So that takes me back to where we began the systemic bias part of it. You can have amazing, big, sexy programs that get great PR, 
But if we don't address these foundational things like salary history, the, the target numbers you're using, and I got a list of 15 different things, every year you're going to have to keep adjusting because every new hire is going to screw up your pay equality. Gosh. So that to me is why this systemic bias, which impacts not just women, but people of color, the LGBTQ community, people with disabilities. Those are the four main groups that are impacted consistently on being underpaid for very, very biased reasons. But if we don't address the problems in the foundation of hiring and promotions and compensation decision processes, all of the big picture agenda items are not going to make long-term consistent goals. We're going to continue circling 80% gender pay inequity because that's what we've been doing for over 20 years now. It's 80%, it's 79%, it's 83%. Oh, we're back to 81%. It's these foundational things that are really important. And that's where I'm living. And that's where I'd love others to join me at. Casey, you work with companies on this very thing. We've got just a few minutes left. How do you get them to think differently and to change this systemic bias that we keep seeing? Well, here's what we need, because it's really more about the employees creating a groundswell. It is not a me on my own thing at all. It is having multiple managers at every different level asking questions about, well, why do we do it this way? Every time they're hiring someone new, ask HR the same questions over and over again, create the pressure so that they see there's a problem there. That's really how it happens. I'm actually working on a book now that will give people more information on those systemic biases and how they can be the change agents at their own employers. So it's not about just making sure you are paid correctly for your job, but that people who report to you are paid correctly and that you're creating a groundswell, that the employer will make systemic changes. Yeah, so important and really, really powerful. Katie, thank you so much for joining me today. You've given us so much food for thought. And thanks to women like you, you're really helping to make waves and change things for the better. So I just want to say thank you and, and acknowledge you for all of this work. And I can't wait to read your book. Thank you, Yana. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse, or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.